Welcome to a special Christmas edition of A Flow of Words on Scarif Bay Community Radio with Manshannon Arts. Fairy Tale of New York by Francis Browner Thank you, Ma, for the 20 Christmases you rushed forward in arrivals when I burst through the sliding doors. For the drive home to Dunleary, the two of us like chipmunks chattering, Dad interrupting to contradict. For the rasher and sizzling sausage breakfast, the hot water bottle and electric blanket toasting my bed. For the sneaky hot ham sandwiches after midnight mass and Dad's surprise under the tree long after Santi stopped coming. For the fruitcake topped with almond icing, the sherry trifle shivering on the sideboard, mince pies flaking in pastry. For soaking the plum pudding with whiskey and lighting a match to see my face glowing in the blue flame. For saying that Christmas began as soon as the pogues were played on the radio and my flight was booked. Fairy tale of New York used to remind you of me. Now it reminds me of you. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. It was indeed Christmas Eve, 1987 to be precise. We were in a drunk tank, all right, but it was also our place of work, our family business the old cod takeaway in Scariff County, Clare. The shop became a veritable drunk tank after a certain time of night, and Christmas Eve was one of the big nights in town. Our punters on that night were a motley crew, the fallout from Christmas work parties. Still hungry? Give us a bag of chips, don't spare the vinegar, easy on the salt, or give us a curry in a hurry. We smiled as if it was the first time we had heard that particular line. Then there were the Christmas breakups, the cynical cheapskates, who broke it off with their girlfriends on Christmas Eve to avoid having to buy them a Christmas present. I kid you not. Leaving themselves with sufficient cash for a breast of chicken snack box and a rake of pints over the 12 days of Christmas. That cohort sometimes clashed with the lads who, in colloquial terms, hadn't pulled at the disco, the famous panoramas across the road, and who bought their nowhere-else-to-go-with-it testosterone to the chipper to cause rows and to fight with their proverbial toenails. Oh, they were a real joy. The ones that pulled at my heartstrings on that night, though, were the gentle folk from isolated parts of the parish who were facing a sad time at Christmas, condemned to sit by their fire to stare up the chimney, often alone from after midnight mass until the postman returned to work and might deliver a letter from America from a long-lost, from a long-forgotten cousin. I remember those men well, often the last to leave the well-lit shop reluctant to collect their bikes and hitch for the mountain road. 
When the floors were mopped, the street outside cleared of litter and all equipment safely turned off. At a late hour, we climbed the stairs. There was much to be done to prepare for Santa's visit and an urgency to get ready for the early morning wake-up call from the children. In addition, the ham would need to be soaked. On that night, though, instead of getting stuck into our tasks, we opened a gift from our trusty young friends, Sinead and Shula. The card attached to the gift read, We think you will like this. The Golden Discs bag contained a single record, still known to us as a 45. And so began our love affair with the fairy tale of New York. We put it on the stereo turntable. We filled a nightcap, or three, and played that record for most of the night. The lyrical genius of Shane McGowan, the husky tones of Kirsty McCall, pure magic. I will never forget those first times we played it, carefully returning the stylus to the edge of the vinyl to hear it again and again. By 4am we knew all the words and were singing our hearts out. It became an anthem for us and it was particularly poignant as we were on the verge of a move to New York in search of a better life far away from the ardours of running a chipper. Half of Ireland were on the move at the time, or so it seemed. By April, we were living in New York, and although we never actually heard the NYPD choir singing Galway Bay, we did once or twice get stopped by them for minor traffic violations. But we did see those cars big as bars. Somehow, that Christmas morning in question, all was as it should be in the world for the small children. Their stockings were full, the bike and tractor arrived and were manoeuvred skillfully and quietly into place while we weren't looking. I wonder did the man in the red suit watch us dance that night around the kitchen to that great song as he fulfilled his annual duties. Perhaps he heard us sing Shane's words, can't make it all alone. I've built my dreams around you. Rest in peace, Shane McGowan. Thank you for this cherished memory. Ni fekamid alehad aun arish. We will never see his likes again. There was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, won't see another one. And then he sang a song, the rare old mountain dew. I turned my face away. Dreamed about you Got on the lucky one Came in 18 to 1 
years from beginning So happy Christmas I love you baby I can see a better time When all our dreams come true Christmas Day 2019 She's 60 years old today Well, 60 years ago today she came to live with us as a newborn, although we don't really know exactly when she was born. She originally came from somewhere in the north of Ireland, a fine, sturdy baby with big brown eyes and perfectly shaped fingers and toes, all accounted for. A black child in 1950s Dublin, she was sold to our family in good faith in the safe knowledge that she would be loved and cared for. My mother bought her, handing over cash in increments over a number of months. The day finally arrived when, payment completed, the task of delivering her to our home was given to a friend of the family, a big burly man that we only ever got glimpses of when we were children. He usually called to our house late at night when we were asleep and we'd been warned not to speak to him if we happened to see him in our house. We knew the rules. Lulu had a full head of tight curls and a tiny red bow attached just above her left ear and the most gorgeous smile. She had, still has, a tiny dimple in her left cheek and skin as smooth as porcelain. She made soft, murmuring sounds back then. Today, she sees everything, but says nothing. Just sits there still smiling, skin still smooth, and the twinkle in her eyes. Bright red nail varnish decorating the nails in her hand that have not been sucked clean. A tiny smear of red lipstick on her lips. Still has her own teeth, but her movement is limited now. The Irish weather. She only remembers that she came to live with our family when she was very young. She was told that she had been living in a small cardboard box for some time before she was rescued. Her freedom was being bought by a kind woman who could ill afford to pay for her. Lulu's freedom was in doubt when the woman was admitted to hospital in November 1959. She pressed her eldest daughter into action, ensuring that Lulu's freedom was bought and Lulu was collected by the family's friend. On Christmas morning, Lulu was presented to me as my gift from Santa. I was five years old. She was the most perfect doll I had ever seen. Her pretty spotted dress and matching knickers, her red rosy lips, the bright red nail varnish on her fingers and toenails, her tiny red bow attached to her hair over her left ear. She was magnificent, a black porcelain crawly doll from Donegal who made a glorious mama sound when she was bent over and back. I couldn't wait to show her to my mother, who was spending her 1959 Christmas in St Kevin's Hospital. Mam, who had ten children, must have been broken-hearted to be in hospital on Christmas Day. Imagine, ten children, a husband and she's so ill that she couldn't go home to spend Christmas with them. That year, 
We brought Christmas to her for a little while in the hospital. Mr Jim Langton, a big friendly man from Kalala Road in Cabra West, had one of very few cars in our neighbourhood. We kids were all piled into the back of his van and taken to see my mammy in hospital. I remember telling her how Santa had brought me this beautiful doll and the smile on her face as she sat me on the bed beside her and marvelled at the generosity of Santa Claus. Sometime later, I found out the true story that my mother had put a deposit on the doll in our local post office and that she had managed the purchase from her hospital bed through my eldest sister, Angela. Angela would be told every time she went to see our mother to make sure that she had paid something off the doll for Madge. And Angela did this religiously, so that when Christmas Day came, Lulu took pride of place in our household, a stranger at our Christmas table. What none of us knew, of course, was that this would be my mother's final Christmas. She died in the following May, 1960, four days after her 42nd birthday. I have spent Christmas in many different places. There was that time that Philip and I went to Toronto, where we were sure we would be guaranteed a white Christmas. There was no snow until after we left, even though we spent New Year in Bennington, Vermont. But we had such fun driving in Vermont. Wicklow was wonderful, surprising the gang by participating in the local Christmas concert, playing my one and only tune on the concertina. One year, we had an early Christmas in Wicklow. I think that's the last time we were all together as a family. New countries, new grandchildren and great-grandchildren have created new homes for their families for Christmas. We did get a white Christmas in Boulder, Colorado one year. It was magical. Almeria in 2018 with Neve, Dana and John was cool and dry and the Gold Coast the previous year with Luke and Leah was stunningly beautiful and warm. Most of my Christmas days have been linked to the memory of that 1959 Christmas Day and the 1961 when on Christmas morning I raced upstairs to show my dad what Santa had brought me. He was lying in bed, sobbing his heart out. My six-year-old self didn't understand why. From then on, Christmas to me was the saddest time. I hated it. As a young mum, I really tried to get into the spirit of Christmas for my children. And on some occasions, I'm sure we got to have good Christmases. Things were always tight. I was never any good at managing money in the way I believe my mother was. And I'm not sure that I managed to recreate the warmth and fun promised in the Christmas advertisements. What I think I did manage to do, though, was to calm the waters of Christmas. As a family, we don't make a huge fuss. We try to do Christmas without the hype, getting to do things we enjoy when we feel like it, not when the media tells us we should. We love each other during the year, not just for Christmas. Lulu established the idea of having a stranger at the table for Christmas dinner and we have met many strangers who later became our friends at our Christmas table throughout the years. I'm so grateful for that. So are many of our Christmas guests, the family who lost their home just before Christmas. 
the women in early recovery from alcohol addiction, the man whose wife died and whose family lived abroad, the young man whose family threw him out because they couldn't live with his mental health issues, the woman and her grandson whose husband left her for another woman just before Christmas. Some have since died, but we still light a candle in our atheist house for them at our Christmas table. Oh, and Lulu still spends Christmas with us too. Let's get the flock out of here. In the old 12 days of Christmas, some presents were absurd. The romantic like in those days were fond of sending birds. A partridge or a clutch of swans or a clucking flock from France was a somewhat bird-brained way of conducting a romance. Imagine waking up in Yuletide with birds just everywhere, nesting in the Christmas tree, roosting on the stairs, some packed in shiny boxes, some tied with ribbons, red, and more stuff down the chimney and loads perched on the bed. The racket would be awful, cawing, cackling and a cooing, and half a dozen geese would certainly be pooing. They do it all the time, you know, it is endless, unremitting. If you're heading for the sofa, just be careful where you're sitting. Those cranky swans will start around, pick a fight, there's no denying. Through your kitchen and living room, the feathers will be flying. You'll have to rise and come downstairs, some order to impose. Pick your steps or you'll have goose crap squashed up between your toes. You may try to separate them, calm them down, restore some peace, before the neighbours lose their patience and send for the police. Don't waste your time, they're just a flock of feather-headed birds, and the hens from France won't understand a single clucking bird. But anyway, this nightmare can be easily avoided. Have a word with your admirer or the presents are decided. If they want to send a bird, send a turkey, that's a winner. You can pluck and clean and stuff it and have it for your dinner. You may note that I've avoided a few lines of this old song. No ladies dancing, leaping lords or drummers banging on. Just hanging and be patient, they'll eventually appear. If I'm still around and writing verse, I'll fit them in next year.
Report from West Cork. Keith Richards and the Dalai Lama operating a burger joint. This Bohan outside Baltimore, their premises. Its foundations reek of watercress and intuitive hope. Are we one with everything? Keith paints in sepia on the roof. Dobbs, the triple spiral Celtic symbol on the door. Lo, a professor approaches from the University of Ontological Studies, no less. Starts ranting that one of the spirals is out of sync with the other two. Listen here, mate, says Equanimous Keith. These days I answer to lesser gods than you. The prof trundles off in his huff, hunger unabated. A trio of go-go dancers replace him. They seek Cornish pastries adorned with toppings of sympathetic bliss and are told, sorry, all sold out. Languidly, they climb the style of an adjacent haggard and vigorously launch themselves into milking a herd of goats. The Archbishop of Canterbury rocks up swinging incense and chewing on a fennel stick. Plonks himself on a big lump of red sandstone beside the Bahon. Ponders vastness in the blue sky dome overhead and O'Gonnell's chances in the Camogie this year. Dalai Lama, clutching a substantial bag of steaming chips, greets him urges him to shift his programmed Western brain. Accordingly, the arch bum shimmies sideways on his adopted rock. Dalai Lama perches in alongside him. Keith arrives. Three guests of a nation sit in silence on red sandstone, their senses fully opened, their communal bag of chips, just for now, unopened. And now, when the chips are down, utterly unflavoured, who would you? share yours with. Kingdom Hall Calling by Anne MacDonald In December, in her 50th year, Mary made a decision to become a Jehovah's Witness for the coming festive season. She kept her grocery shop within reason and waved at neighbours who stopped to read the card tacked to the front door heralding the cancellation of Mary's Christmas. This year there would be no tinsel tat, no tree to shed its spines across the carpet clogging up the hoover, 
No cards from people never seen, no being a consumer of stuff she didn't want and definitely no chocolate roses in a tin, they being a million sins at Fat Club. Her house and mind would instead focus on quality time without the sugar. No socks, jocks, bath sets, nets of easy peelers, no sprouts from Brussels slopped onto gravy on a plate, And at the front gate, a sign addressed the postman directly. No cards here, bills and junk mail welcome. It was a witness at Mary's Fat Club that sparked the idea. Not the finding of Jehovah, so much you'll understand, as the shedding of the stress, the spending, the never-ending putting up and taking down of plastic angels, tinfoil baubles or balding birds, claws of wire, bent with arthritic years of gripping the aforementioned tree. Listen to me, Maggie had said. You're mad, Mary. We don't do Christmas. The lights went on in Mary's head. She said, this year, Maggie, I won't either. So neither woman wasted hours wrapping crap for people who didn't want it, trying not to cry when adding up the bill. This year, I swear I will spend the day in silence or in nature, or learning to play the ukulele by tutorial on YouTube. Maggie handed her a copy of The Watchtower. Bolognese will do for dinner. Garlic bread, a surefire winner, being a family tradition in our house for the curing of hangovers. No bobbled festive wool pullovers which scalded Mary's underarms, doing nothing for her figure. Each year she knew she needed a size bigger, if truth be known. Why did she not think of this before? Maggie pushed some leaflets through the letterbox on the front door. So for the festive season, Mary signed her name as Rachel, kept her money in a tin and rang the New Year in from the comfort of her home, being perfectly alone, smiling as the first baby born in Ireland made the paper's front page. A little girl, screaming with incandescent rage at the state of the world she'd arrived in and the job she had ahead of her. Exhausted Mammy smiling for the camera. Mary laughed when she realised they called the baby Saoirse, the Irish word for freedom. fix for Christmas and who you're gonna see and who ate all the biscuits the memories, the memories and now you're gone or you missed it it's come and passed you by it's a shame that you've eclipsed it so let it fly in, let it fly on, no, no this is not what you want to hear Silent night, and can't you hear that haunting silent night? And somewhere a drummer boy and his drum, the window bathe in flickering candlelight, and can't you hear that haunting silent night? The hour is getting late, midnight, are you expecting someone else to come? And can't you hear that haunting silent night, and somewhere a drummer boy and his drum? Silent night. 
It was called the Sacred Heart Lamp, although it stood in front of the Child of Prague. We knew it as the nightlight. Located on a shelf outside our parents' bedroom, the tiny beam lit the hallway, reaching the stairwell, merging into the glow of the light below. The sound of the alarm clock ringing and all four of us made a dash for the stairs. At a glance, we could see Santa had come, drank the bottle of stout, ate half the cake, took the carrot for Rudolph, and hanging from the mantle were four pairs of bulging stockings. Then the race to our parents' room, onto their bed, scattering toys, the sight of which brought oohs and ahs. Still dark, it was time for early morning mass. We walked together in the darkness, stepping to one side as the quirks passed us in pony and trap. Happy Christmas all, Patrick said. Did Santa come? Paraffin lamps were lighting in the windows as we passed the houses in Mount Shannon village. Everywhere people walked. The beam of an occasional cyclist threw light on the road ahead. Near the church we could hear the choir practising silent night and the first Noel. The mass then was in Latin. The priest had his back to the people. At the end, facing us, he gave us his final blessing and wished the congregation a very happy Christmas. Daylight had dawned while we were at Mass. The walk home did not seem too long as we had our presents and the Christmas dinner to look forward to and the novelty of the box of biscuits, a gift from the shop for the trade. The fire in the open heart, the pothooks on the crane, the scents coming from the goose with its bounty of vegetables and oozing stuffing. Eventually dinner was served, but not before the Christmas ritual of lighting the long red candle set in the centre of a scooped out turnip, red berry holly holding it securely in place. The end of Christmas Day as night fell, the family knelt in front of the fireplace for the rosary before climbing the stairs to bed. Upstairs, the child of Prague, bathed in the glow of the sacred heart lamp, our night light at the end of Christmas Day.
my memories of the Christmases of our youth would be one thing I I, I recall is the, the the smells the smells of Christmas, which would be the the fresh lime because the houses were li- a lot of them were lime washed attached houses would be lime washed and they'd get a bit of a smartening up for Christmas so there would be the sharp acrid smell of the lime in in in, in the cold frosty air. I remember that smell very well and also the smell of the, the nutmeg our mother would be using in the baking because there was no powdered nutmeg in those days. They'd be scraping the nutmeg itself with a knife and the the, the, the flavour and that was much stronger. I can remember that, you know. And uh, then there was a custom then of leaving the door open on, on Christmas Eve when the candles had been lit and that, leaving the door open yeah, as as late as possible, as close to bedtime as possible. The thinking was that if the Holy Family should be seeking shelter again, well, our house wasn't going to be close to them. We were going to be ready for them. And no matter how cold the night was, our mother would be wanting to leave the door hanging open and we'd be wanting to close it. And um, I remember that very, very well. And, and another thing was the big blazing fire and the block nullag, as they used to call it, which Dad would round up a couple of weeks beforehand. That was a, a couple of feet long of a, a round, almost a tree trunk, a big, big, big block. And that would be put in at the back of the big open fireplace. And, and, and that was the backbone of the Christmas fires for a week because to take a full week for it to be finally burned out. And every morning the two burnt ends would be pushed in together again and the new fire would be built around it. That, that was a very important, the, the block nolog. That had to be got. And then, and then as well, it was, it was a goose, a goose in those days we were, we were familiar with, the goose that we had reared. <laughs> and uh, and uh, our mother liked to do things on Christmas Day. Uh, Dad would finish up the jobs, as they would be called very early. Of course, there was no light, electric lighting or anything, so darkness fell outside at half past four something like that and uh, she would be ready when he came in finished for the night and the Christmas candles would be lit again and then and then we sat down to the goose that we were waiting for all day and also on, on a Christmas day she used to have on Christmas Eve she made sweet scones I remember them well a plain scone white scone but they were sweet and she and she would blend uh, cocoa and sugar and boiling water in a saucer and make make uh, make it into the consistency of butter spreadable and she she spread that on top of the scones and when it got cold she would do that when the scones were cold when that when that got cold in it set and, and it was a thin layer of chocolate and they were a big treat for us and she she let us at them then on Christmas day <laughs> I wish I was waiting for the goose. <laughs> and yes, uh, th- th- those are those are memories I have of Christmas. This is a memory of Christmas, nineteen forty-nine, and uh, it is my earliest recollections of Christmas remembered. 
My earliest recollection of Christmas goes back to 1950. I was five years old and I still vividly remember a local man named Mikey Dooley, the local town crier and dog undertaker, standing at our front door, carrying a huge bat of beautifully buried honey tied up in a rope, a bunch of which he was selling to my grandmother for a few pence. This would have been close enough to December the 8th, and she distributed that bunch around the kitchen that evening. The choicest sprig would always go behind the picture of the sacred hat. A close second came the picture of Our Lady of Sorrows. Next came the Pope, and so on. The decreasing number of berries and the sprig denoting the importance of lack of it in her life. I often wondered why she never selected Our Lady of Sorrows first, because her life wasn't easy. I suppose it was appropriate and Christmas was always a special time for her. Um, well, cleaning the chimney was fierce important, and we had a little rhyme. When Sandy got stuck up the chimney, he began to shout, You girls and boys won't get any ties if you don't pull me out. My beard is all black, there's soot in my sack, and my nose is tickling too. When Sandy got stuck up the chimney, achoo, achoo, achoo. Well, anyway, clearing the chimney for Christmas was as important in its way as getting holly. The persistent bad weather over a long period of time would have made the chimneys dangerously sooty, and over the Christmas period people would light bigger fires than usual for that cheerful effect. A clean chimney at this time was essential. Another important consideration for us kids was the fact that Santy so we were told, was always reluctant to the first dirty sooty chimneys for fear of getting his beard and clothes out sooty and smelly. That was a most serious consideration altogether. Um, Christmas Eve. Um, it was Christmas Eve in our house left me with unforgettable memories. I still recall a certain Mr. Bogdan from Kilratira arriving at our house with a sack of potatoes, a tradition that went back to my great-grandfather's time. Jimmy O'Brien, the local butcher, arrived with a few parcels of beef and bones, and a certain John Nolan from Tom Graney arrived with an ash creel of turf. To the usual tranquillity of our house, this was total bedlam, which is why I recall it all so clearly. Uh, we had a lot of tranquillity, I can tell you, in our place, that never much happened. Then there was the last-minute Christmas shopping. A reasonable stock of food had to be laid on, because the shops would be closed for the few days. And also, there would be a few extras laid on for visiting family and friends. Wonder of wonders! A few bottles of stout and an egg and a pour's whiskey found its way onto our shopping list, along with uh, a couple of Christmas candles, of course, red and white. These were indeed unusual purchases uh, for someone who had a jaundiced view of alcohol and of those who abused such beverage, but Christmas was always touched a soft spot in her heart. The Christmas Post At Christmas time, letters and cards would arrive on a daily basis. Those would be mostly from my uncles and aunts, sons and daughters of my grandmother, who were working abroad. The letters were always heartwarming and contained the blessings and good wishes of the sender, but just as importantly, or even more so even. They also contained a few pounds sterling, which was like manna from heaven to us. Honest to God, the prayers she offered up for their good intentions and received a few bob. It's no wonder they all did well. Midnight Mass. 
Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve was a mess. It was the mess to attend. Christmas would never be the same without it. I remember well the first Christmas following my first Holy Communion. In those days, we had to be fasting from midnight the night before, and receiving the sacrament, and put into perspective of so many hours, it meant that we fasted for twelve hours before going to midnight mass. My grandmother was very strict on this point, and not even a drink of water was permitted. It was a long haul for little kids like myself, who, as everyone knows, who have kids of that age, always seem to be starving, no matter how you feed them. However, the discipline of the long fast did us a power of good, and we felt very proud of ourselves going up to the rails that night. Sermons and homilies from the altar were always a matter of indifference to me, as a general rule, but on Christmas Eve the sermons seemed to go on forever. There was the dual reason for this, hunger and Santa Claus, and not necessarily in that order. Home and Santa once we had arrived home from Mass, all thoughts of food were shelved for the moment, and the great wonder of Christmas was revealed in all its magic. At some stage of the time, Santy had arrived. Four or five carefully wrapped boxes were there in the fireplace of the main bedroom. The magic and wonder of opening them, and revealing what was to me, and Aladdin's cave of ludo, draft snakes and daddles, and a cowboy outfit. The cowboy outfit con- consisted of a belt and a holster, a six-gun, a hat and a sheriff's badge. It was pure magic. Christmas Day. In spite of the lateness of the hour of retiring the previous night, I always woke up early on Christmas morning with that feeling of wonder and excitement that is too obviously lacking these days. The O'Briens were my next-door neighbours in those days, and so, God rest them, used to play with me always. We used to spend nearly all Christmas Day playing at the board games and then challenging each other to gunfights. The fastest draw always won. There wasn't a huge variety of ties available in the shops in Scarif. During the early 1950s, mechano sets and tie trains with circular tracks were difficult to come by unless you had access to the big stores in Limerick or Ennis and the wherewithal to purchase them. There were prestige presents of the time, pretty much along the lines of smartphones and computer consoles and stuff these days. Christmas dinner. My grandmother, God rest her, was a great cook, but she surpassed herself when it came to the dinner on Christmas Day, because we kept our own poultry. A plump cockerel was not the new on our table. The cockerel was roasted with roast beef, roast potatoes, gravy and other trimmings. It was a feast fit for a king. And we said a special grace before the dinner in Thanksgiving to that baby king whose birth we were celebrating. Yes, indeed, Christmas is such a special time of peace and goodwill. You have been listening to Francis Branner, Fairy Tale of New York, 
Cara McNamara, Christmas Memory, 1987. Madge O'Callaghan, Christmas Day, 2019. Liam Callan, Let's Get the Flock Out of Here. Anthony Linehan, Report from West Cork. Anne MacDonald, Kingdom Hall Calling. Tom Kennedy, Silent Night. And Patricia Donlan, Silent Night. The music you've heard was The Pogues and Kirsty McCall, Fairy Tale of New York, The Christmas Guys, Partridge in a Pear Tree, Mark Geary, Christmas Biscuits, Enya, Iha Kuhn and the Clancy Brothers, Angels We Have Heard. In 2023, we said farewell to two of our Flow of Words contributors, Michael O'Gorman and Marcella McNamara. We remember them this season and dedicate this show to their memory as we replay their Christmas pieces. Happy Christmas and thank you to my fellow radio and arts festival volunteers and to all the contributors and listeners to A Flow of Words.